0: Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In part one of Billy the Kid, we introduced you to Billy the Kid, not the vicious outlaw killer that many writers and dime novels made him out to be, but a young man, basically without fear, that was pushed to kill by circumstances that continued to pile up against him. And when he was pushed into a corner, he was as mean and deadly a shot as any of them. He got an unfair start on the wrong side of the law and was never given a chance to turn that around. He also saw his boss and friends being shot down beside him. They haven't committed no crimes either. And in avenging their deaths, he became a wanted outlaw. And because he had a known name, if someone was killed in a shootout, Billy the kid got blamed for killing anyway. It made no difference if he had fired the fatal shot or not. Justice had more than one blind eye in the American West in 1880. Pat Garrett's 1882 book, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, is actually a good book, and he, having once been a drinking pal of Billy's before he put on a badge, admits at the start that Billy was pushed into becoming a wanted man, while at the same time sadly admitting that he himself, Garrett, as a sheriff, assigned with the duty of capturing Billy dead or alive for the murder of Sheriff Brady, which could have been done by any of the men there in Lincoln that day, but Billy got tagged for it, sadly admits that he was the one who pulled the trigger to end Billy's life. And on that first page of Pat Garrett's book, the reader is haunted by how difficult that must have been, and wonders for a second if Garrett really did kill Billy. As we'll discuss at the end of this episode, maybe Pat and Billy devised a way to give Billy a new life as a different man with a new name. There was a man named Brushy Bill who claimed that that was what had happened, and his story, although not without flaws, is compelling. Before we begin today's story, there are two things I'd like to catch you up on. One, that we're reminding our listeners that we are gladly accepting donations and monthly pledges from patrons at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. And two, that we really need fresh reviews from Apple listeners at iTunes now known as Apple Podcasts. If you're not sure how to leave a review, just Google, How do I leave a podcast review at at Apple Podcasts? And they'll have the answer for you. And now to our story. In September of 1878, the new territorial governor of Arizona, Lou Wallace, after hearing all the stories from both sides, did the unthinkable and wrote a pardon for any crimes that had been committed since February of that year. That didn't let Billy the Kid off the hook, but it was a big help to all the crooks and weasels involved in the Lincoln County War. Army Captain Dudley responded in a rage, asking why he was being pardoned for a crime that he didn't commit, at least in his opinion, when in truth Colonel Dudley had ordered federal troops to shoot down McSween and set fire to his home with his family inside. It seems as though Wallace was trying to clear Lincoln County off his desk so he could get to other matters, and justice just seems to be the last thing that was on his mind. The shoe still had a long way to drop in Lincoln County. On February 18, 1879, after months of an uneasy stillness, Billy the Kid and Tom O'Foliard, having heard that Dolan and Evans wanted to make peace of some sort and showing no fear of an ambush, rode into Lincoln and walked into the local saloon. Word got out, and soon Dolan, Evans, and several other riders rode up, hitched up their horses, and walked inside. Tom Catrone's brother-in-law, their eyes in the bar, had sent a runner for them upon seeing Billy and Tom walk in. With Dolan and Evans was Bill Campbell, a known fast-draw and vicious killer who had recently joined the gang. If they wanted a truce, they were getting off to a bad start. They all talked, but the discussion ended quickly, and the kid and Foliard left the saloon, followed by Evans, Dolan, and Campbell. Campbell spotted Chapman, McSween's one-armed lawyer, crossing the plaza and called out to him. Chapman, you might remember from Part 1, had been Mrs. McSween's counsel for the murder of her husband and had written detailed letters to the Governor and Secretary of Interior shirts outlining all the problems in Lincoln County, including the Riley Dolan Murphy gang and Tom Catrone's Santa Fe ring, and had leveled murder charges against then-Colonel Dudley. "'Campbell called out to Chapman. "'Who are you, and where are you going?' "'I'm attending to my business,' answered Chapman, "'and you know who I am.' "'Maybe we can make you talk differently, lawyer,' "'Campbell spat out, obviously drunk, "'and itching for a fight with a one-armed man. "'You don't scare me,' said Chapman. "'I know all of you, and it's no use,' Chapman said. "'Then I'll settle you,' snarled Campbell.' and he drew his gun and fired, hitting Chapman in the chest. As Chapman fell, Dolan drew his weapon and fired two more shots into Chapman. Then the two men poured whiskey over the fallen Chapman and tossed a match on him. Eyewitnesses reported that Billy and Tom had tried to leave when Campbell had started the name-calling, but Jesse Evans had a pistol leveled at the kid and O'Foliard, who were forced to watch Chapman being shot and then set on fire. Evans and Dolan then forced Billy and Tom back into the saloon at gunpoint, where Campbell swore, I promised God and General Dudley that I'd kill Chapman, and I did it. So drink up. Which Campbell and Evans did. Shot glass after shot glass. Billy and Tom were looking for any chance to get the hell out of there without getting shot. If they had drawn an open fire outside or in here, they might have dropped a few of them, but the chances were at that close range they would have been shot as well. So it was obviously wait and watch time. A voice in the bar spoke up saying Chapman was unarmed. And Campbell ordered Waltz, Catrone's brother-in-law, to go outside and place a pistol next to Chapman's body. But Waltz begged off. And truth being stranger than fiction, Billy said he would do it. Probably figuring Dolan and Campbell were now so drunk that one of them just might agree. Evans must have left at that point, And Campbell handed Billy a gun. No doubt unloaded. Seconds later, Billy and Tom were out the door and running past the smoldering body of Chapman toward the corral and their horses. The following morning saw the entire Dolan gang riding into town to attend the coroner's inquest, and the result was, as you might guess, an inquest that stated, with regard to Chapman's death, death at the hands of persons unknown. At this point in the story, you really have to wonder why they didn't blame Billy as he had been singled out for all the other killings with the exception of Tunstall. Governor Lou Wallace was furious when the sheriff, Pepin, wired in the news of Chapman's death, and soon Wallace had more to be upset about when Chapman's business partner, Ira Leonard, began sending angry letters demanding justice, and let it be known that copies were also being sent to Secretary Shirts in Washington. The letter suggested that Dudley and Lieutenant French were complicit in both McSween's and Chapman's murder. That got Wallace off his chair and headed for Lincoln, where he got his first dose of what was really going on there, after interviewing witnesses. Wallace returned to Santa Fe and wrote to General Hatch, asking that he remove Dudley immediately and arrest Dolan, Evans, and Campbell for murder. Billy and Tom O'Foliard received the news at their hideout that Wallace had sent out troops to pick up Billy as a witness against Dudley, not Dolan, Campbell, and Evans which worried Billy, as he had been a witness to that brutal murder as well. But to some it might have looked like he was a part of that when he went back into the bar after the shooting of Chapman. It might not have been obvious that he had done so only at the point of a gun. And Billy's worst fears were realized when he learned that Wallace had placed a $1,000 reward on his head. Wallace wanted him as more than a witness. Billy wanted Wallace to know that he had witnessed Chapman's murder as well. "'Billy stayed in hiding, and in March he penned his own letter to Governor Wallace and had it delivered. "'And this is how it read. "'To His Excellency, the Governor-General Lew Wallace, dear sir, "'I have heard that you will give $1,000 for my body, which I can understand it means alive as a witness. "'I know it is as a witness against those that murdered Mr. Chapman. "'If it was so that I could appear in court, I could give the desired information.' but I have indictments against me for things that happened in the late Lincoln County War, and I'm afraid to give up because my enemies would kill me. The day Mr. Chapman was murdered, I was in Lincoln at the request of good citizens to meet with Mr. J. Dolan to meet as friends, as to be able to leave aside our arms and go to work. I was present when Mr. Chapman was murdered, and know who did it, and if it were not for those indictments, I would have made it clear before now. If it is in your power to annul those indictments, I hope you will do so as to give me a chance to explain. Please send me an answer telling me what you can do. You can send answer by bearer. I have no wish to fight any more. Indeed, I have not raised an arm since your proclamation. As to my character, I refer to any of the citizens for the majority of them are my friends and have been helping me all they could. I am called Kid Antrim, but Antrim is my stepfather's name. Waiting for your answer, I remain your obedient servant, W.H. Bonney. A few days later, Billy received Governor Wallace's answer. W.H. Bonney Come to the house of old Squire Wilson, not the lawyer, at 9 o'clock Monday night alone. I don't mean his office, but his residence. Follow along the foot of the mountain south of town. Come in on that side and knock on the east door. I have the authority to exempt you from prosecution, if you will testify to what you say you know. The object of the meeting at Squire Wilson's is to arrange the matter in a way to make your life safe. To do that, the utmost secrecy is going to be used. So come alone. Don't tell anybody. Not a living soul, where you are coming, nor the object. If you could trust Jesse Evans, you could trust me. Lou Wallace Now, if you listeners are thinking what I'm thinking, that looked a lot like a setup, pure and simple. Billy must have been expecting to have a net thrown over him or a bullet in the back at any minute. At any rate, Monday the 17th, Billy was making his way along the base of El Capitan Mountains to Squire Wilson's house. Wilson was an admirer of Billy and one guy Billy could trust, and he was putting a lot of faith in that now. Squire Wilson waited along with Wallace in a room on the east side of the house the room lit by a coal oil lamp which was casting wavering shadows across the walls. At 9 p.m. there came a soft knock on the door and Wallace said, Come in. There came a few seconds of introductions and Billy lowered his Winchester. It was a high Western drama played out in this small room, a Civil War general who had been a friend of Lincoln and saved Washington, D.C. from Jubal Early's troops in the early days of the Civil War. And across from him, a young outlaw named Billy the Kid, who seemed to turn up in the middle of everything in New Mexico, and now was promising to provide valuable testimony in return for clearing his name. And Wallace promised it that night, a complete pardon. They talked for more than an hour. Billy told Wallace that even when Wallace delivered his pardon, he, Billy, would still be the target of the Dolan-Murphy-Riley gang. But Wallace swore that he had the men and the power to protect him then gave Billy a plan that would have Billy turn himself in so he could be taken in front of a grand jury to testify. Billy left after saying he would need two days to think it over. And during those two days, Bill Campbell and Jesse Evans, who were being held at the Fort Stanton guardhouse, were allowed to escape. The kid sent a letter to Squire Wilson asking if the deal was still on, and Wilson said it was. On March 21, 1879, Billy turned himself in, accepting the plan, and bunked at the jail. Wallace reported to Secretary Schert in a letter that he was amazed to see Billy's friends, which seemed like half the county, hanging around the jail, keeping up a party atmosphere. At the same time, they were probably also providing a ring around the jail to keep Billy alive so he could make it in one piece to the trial, which was to take place in Lincoln County, or so he thought. Two days later, Billy gave Wallace a written statement outlining the rustling activities in Lincoln County and revealing the names of those who had bought stolen cattle from that little tally book they had come across. In April, he testified. His counsel was Ira Leonard. Meanwhile, Wallace had set up a provisional office at Fort Stanton and was directing the search for Evans and Campbell, as well as the gangs offered up by the kid. The gangs attempted to ambush and kill Wallace, but failed then threatened the judge with death. So Wallace assigned a guard detail to the judge. Colonel Dudley stayed busy contacting the War Department, denouncing the governor and the desperate character, namely Billy the Kid, who he said was advising the governor. But just a few days before the big trial started, Lou Wallace suddenly went on a long trip back to Santa Fe to make up lost time with his wife. And the kid, now in leg irons, was treated to the presence of "'of Colonel W. L. Ryerson, "'as you might remember, "'Catrone's right-hand man, "'as his prosecutor. "'Ryerson then told the courtroom "'that this trial was now for the purpose "'of trying William H. Bonney "'for the murder of Sheriff William Brady "'and that he was seeking a charge of venue "'from Lincoln County to Dona Ana County. "'A shocked silence filled the courtroom. "'Billy's heart sunk.' He had been duped, lied to by the governor and the squire, and he had no friends in Dona Ana County. He had been hung out to dry as Dona Ana County and its judge and its law was controlled by Ryerson and Tom Catrone. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Tom O'Fulliard appeared the next day and urged Billy to break out. But the kids said, no. Washington had finally ordered a court of inquiry to investigate Dudley's actions during the killing of McSween, and Billy wanted to testify. He wanted to even the score from the witness stand. And so he did at Dudley's trial, testifying that Dudley had ordered the volley of shots that killed young Harvey Morris and the Mexicans who had followed him out of McSween's house that fateful night. But despite Billy's testimony and that of others, 1,300 pages worth, in fact, Dudley was declared as you might guess, innocent. The army successful again, protecting their own. In Santa Fe, Wallace heard the results the same day he found out that Jimmy Dolan, with Ryerson's help, had received an acquittal on Chapman's murder from friendly and probably well-placed judges in Socorro, and Dolan was a free man. That was enough for Billy. In June of 1879, he slipped off his cuffs and walked out of his jail cell, where Tom and Doc had a horse waiting for him, and headed for freedom. That summer of 1879, Doc, Tom, Charlie Beaudry, and Billy lived it up in Fort Sumner, working on ranches, gambling, racing horses, and carousing with women in Beaver Smith's Saloon at Fort Sumner. Billy was given special treatment in the form of delicious stews by a wrinkled old Navajo woman who had taken a liking to him called Deluvina. She'd become a part of the Maxwell family years before. She worried over him like a grandma, and he enjoyed all the attention. When Billy had first arrived, he was told that his old friend Pat Garrett was working at ranches nearby along the Rudoso. The man who told him was Pete Maxwell, and if that name rings a bell, it's because his father was Lucian B. Maxwell, one-time owner of the famous Maxwell Land Grant, which we discussed in The Quick and the Dead. As the year turned to 1880, In January, Billy was approached by a young tough named Joe Grant, who wanted to be known as the man who killed Billy the Kid. Grant approached him in a saloon and tried to get Billy to fight, but Billy warned him off, asking him to back off and think about it. The young gunfighter had been drinking, and drew and fired at Billy, missing him. Billy's return shot didn't miss, and Grant was dead before he hit the floor. That spring, Billy was introduced to Dave Rudabaugh, a wanted man who was being pursued by the Pinkertons for railroad robberies and a lynch mob in Missouri, where he had bumped heads with Jesse James robbing stagecoaches, banks, and trains. Rudabaugh had recently killed a jailer in an attempt to free an outlaw friend named John Webb, but Webb had refused to run, saying he was waiting on a pardon from Governor Wallace. You can imagine Billy grinning when he heard that story and probably commenting that there were likely lots of men in leg irons waiting on a pardon from Wallace. That's when Billy turned his back on the law and joined with a bad bunch. He left White Oaks in the company of his two friends, Doc Skurlock and Tom O'Foliard, along with Dave Rudabaugh, Billy Wilson, and Tom Pickett. It was only a few weeks later that Pat Garrett was appointed Deputy Sheriff of Lincoln County. A few months later, Garrett would become the sheriff. With the help of Tom Catrone, Garrett would soon become a deputy U.S. marshal with the ability to cross county or state lines as needed to chase and arrest fugitives, and you can easily guess who was on his most wanted list. Billy the Kid. Katrone and Ryerson had already put the screws to Billy any number of ways, and sending Billy's old friend after him with a license to kill would be the icing on the cake. And as if Garrett wasn't enough, Catrone managed to set up Bob Olinger as Garrett's deputy. And Olinger had a grudge to settle with the kid. His best friend Bob Beckwith had been killed that night behind McSween's house when Billy and others had shot at him while making his escape from the burning house. On December thirteenth, eighteen eighty, on December thirteenth, eighteen eighty, Governor Wallace posted a new five hundred dollar bounty for Bonnie's capture. Pat Garrett continued his search for Bonnie. On December twenty-third, Garrett and his posse, after ambushing the gang at Fort Sumner on December nineteenth later captured Bonnie along with Pickett, Rudabaugh, and Wilson at Stinking Springs. The following are excerpts from the Las Vegas Gazette, No Friends of the Kid, which covered the story, beginning with the killing of O'Foliard at Fort Sumner. The story reads, On December 19th, Tom O'Foliard, The Kid, Tom Pickett, Dave Rudabaugh, Charlie Baudry, and Billy Wilson, riding two and two, came into Fort Sumner as the light was fading. "'Garrett and his men had just returned from one of their searches, "'and when the six came around the northeast corner of the building, "'Garrett, who was in advance, called out for them to halt. "'O'Foliard and Pickett were in the front. "'O'Foliard reached for a six-shooter, "'but was not quick enough for Garrett, who shot first, bringing him down. "'The others put spurs to their horses and escaped under heavy fire. "'Pools of blood were discovered, and it was first thought Pickett was wounded, "'but only O'Foliard was shot beside a horse.' He lived for two hours after being shot. The night was foggy and the gang managed to get away. Word was brought to Garrett at Sumner that the gang was hanging around Basil's ranch and Wednesday night, 16 men under the command of Pat Garrett set out for Basil's, 10 miles east of Sumner. They arrived about midnight, only to find the gang had ridden out, but now it was snowing and the tracks were easy to follow. They cornered them at a stone house at Stinking Springs and waited. At daybreak, Charlie Baudry came out the front door, wearing a hat similar to the kids, and they shot him, whereupon he stumbled back into the house. Baudry warned his friends, then stepped outside, his hands raised, but fell dead. The siege continued throughout the day. The gang had two horses inside and were trying to drag a third one in when Garrett shot the horse and it fell, blocking the entrance to the house. After a conference, Rudabaugh, Wilson, and Pickett agreed to surrender much to Billy's disgust. Rudabaugh finally walked out with his hands up and surrendered. The others had no choice but to follow. One of the two horses in the house was Billy's and known to be the fastest horse in the county. Billy recognized most of the men in the posse and told Frank Stewart he could have it. They were all taken to Sumner where crowds of people came to get a glimpse of Billy who was doing newspaper interviews and appeared to be taking it all in stride and somehow keeping his sense of humor. ''You appear to take it easy,'' said one reporter. ''Yes,'' answered Billy. ''What's the use of looking on the gloomy side of everything?'' ''The laugh's on me this time.'' Then he said, ''Is the jail in Santa Fe any better than this one?'' ''There was a big crowd gazing at me, wasn't there?'' ''Well, perhaps some of them will think me at least half a man now. Everybody seems to think I was some sort of animal.'' The newspapers had done a good job whipping up public hatred for Billy over the past year, never really investigating the crimes that others said he'd committed. The newspapers had the power to sway public opinion any way they wanted, and they also chose the way that helped sales the most. The truth be damned. If calling Billy the Kid a sadistic murderer sold more papers, no more thought was required, and they could edit interviews to go in any direction they wanted. They treated Rudaball and the Kid as like criminals, which couldn't have been further from the truth. An angry mob threatened to take the kid and Dave Rudabaugh and hang them, but Garrett intervened, saying they were headed for trial in Santa Fe. During the night, he set up deputies all around the train station in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and quickly loaded them both in one of the passenger cars. The train started forward, but suddenly stopped as an angry crowd was blocking its progress. A very angry bunch of Mexicans were after Rudabaugh, and wanted him in a big way. One newspaper reporter misquoted Billy as saying that if he had a Winchester, he would kill all those greasers, when in actuality, he had said, in frustration to being cuffed while an angry mob was threatening to hang him, said, If I had my Winchester, I would lick the whole crowd. The Mexicans in Lincoln County respected Billy, as was evident when his friend Chavez and his men had offered a fight with him during the Lincoln Town Battle. Paulita Maxwell in Fort Sumner, Once told a biographer, Billy's record as a heartbreaker was quite a formidable one. Like a sailor, he had a sweetheart in every port of call, she said. In every placita, some little senorita was proud to be known as his querida. Even after he escaped from Lincoln, he came to the weekly dances. He loved to dance, spoke fluent Spanish, and was well-liked. The 30 deputies cleared the mob, and the train started slowly forward. "'while Billy continued a conversation with reporters "'who had approached his window when the train had slowed. "'I don't blame you for writing of me as you have,' he told one reporter, "'but then I don't know as anyone would believe anything good of me anyway. "'I was for Billy all the way. "'I never stole any stock. "'I made my living by gambling. "'They wouldn't let me settle down. "'If they had, I wouldn't be here today. "'John Chisholm got me into all this trouble "'and then wouldn't let me out.' I went up to Lincoln to stand my trial on the warrant that was out for me, but the territory took a change of venue to Doña Ana, and I skinned out. The train's wheels were pumping now, and the reporters were falling behind as the cars began to rumble along the rails on their journey to Las Vegas, New Mexico, then on to Santa Fe. It's a good time to note that Miguel Otero Jr., author of The Real Billy the Kid, who had supposedly met the kid after his arrest, while riding on the same train car with him to Santa Fe, once wrote, "'I liked the kid very much, and long before we reached Santa Fe, nothing would have pleased me more than to witness his escape. He had a share of good qualities and was very pleasant. He had a reputation for being considerate of the old, the young, and the poor. He was loyal to his friends, and above all, loved his mother devotedly. He was unfortunate in starting life and became a victim of circumstances.' And looking back to my first meeting with Billy the Kid, my impressions were most favorable, and I can honestly say that he was a man more sinned against than sinning. Billy asked for paper and pen on the train and began writing to Governor Wallace, letters that would wait on Wallace's desk until he got back from Washington, where he had left for on the same day that Billy's train had left Sumner. Wallace's book Ben-Hur was now a bestseller and the governor had better things to do than worry about a promise he had made to some orphan kid who was good with a gun. Besides, he was headed for Turkey as the new United States minister to that country, and the palace was waiting. After arriving in Santa Fe, Bonnie went to trial in April of 1881 in Mesilla, New Mexico, then in Doña Ana County, home of prosecuting attorney Ryerson and his cronies. Following only two days of testimony in front of a hand-picked jury, picked by the crooked sheriff of Mesilla, Bonnie was found guilty of Sheriff Brady's murder. It was the only conviction secured against any of the combatants in the Lincoln County War. The judge's name? Justice Warren Bristol. Billy's old enemy. Remember that just two years before, Agent Fred Angel had included his opinion of that judge's crooked connection with the Santa Fe ring. But judges' jobs are sacred and highly political and lifetime. The best gig you can get and Bristol and Ryerson had been gunning for just this opportunity to put the hammer down on Billy. As it turned out, Billy was broke. He didn't have $50 for court fees, which could have bought him a new trial. On April 13th, Judge Warren Bristol sentenced Bonnie to hang with his execution scheduled for May 13th, 1881, in 30 days. According to legend, upon sentencing, the judge told Bonnie he was going to hang until he was dead, dead, dead. And Bonnie's response was, you can go to hell, hell, hell. Following his sentencing, Bonnie was moved to Lincoln, where he was held under guard in the top floor of the town courthouse. On the evening of April 28, 1881, while Garrett was in White Oaks, collecting taxes and buying lumber for the scaffold to hang Billy, Deputy Bob Olinger took five other prisoners across the street for a meal, leaving James Bell, another deputy, alone with Bonnie at the jail. Bonnie asked to be taken outside to use the outhouse behind the courthouse. On their return to the jail, Bonnie, who was walking ahead of Bell up the stairs to his cell, hid around a blind corner and attacked Bell when he approached, going for his gun. During the ensuing scuffle, Bonnie grabbed Bell's revolver and shot him in the back as Bell ran out of the jail and into the street. Bonnie used the keys in Bell's pocket to unlock his cuffs. George Gauss, a cook who had worked for Tunstall and was witnessing this out in the street, would later write, I came out of my room where I had gone to light my pipe and was crossing the yard behind the courthouse when I heard a shot fired, then a tussle upstairs in the courthouse, someone heading downstairs, and Deputy Sheriff Bell emerging from the door, running towards me. I then saw the other sheriff, Olinger, coming out of the hotel opposite with four or five county prisoners. I called to him to come quick. He did so, and when he had come close to me, I told him that I left Bell laying dead behind me in the yard, and before he could reply, he was struck by a well-directed shot from the window above us, and fell dead at my feet. I ran for my life to reach my room for safety, and Billy the Kid called out to me, "'Don't run. I won't hurt you. I'm alone, and master of this town, and no one will hurt me. Go and saddle one of Judge Leonard's horses, and I'll clear out as soon as I can have these shackles loosened from my legs.' "'and Gauss wrote, "'I threw a small prospecting pick "'up through the open window to him "'and he was working on it for at least an hour "'until he realized he couldn't get them both off, "'but he freed one and tied the other to his waist. "'I saddled a small skinnish pony belonging to Bill Burt "'as it was the only horse I could find "'and had also, as Billy had commanded, "'tied a pair of red blankets behind the saddle. "'As Billy passed Bell on the way out, he said, "'I'm sorry I had to kill him, but I couldn't help it. "'Upon passing the body of Olinger, who, as it was later told, had been taunting Billy pretty badly. He gave him the tip of his boot and said, You're not going to round me up again. He then told me, upon mounting the pony, to tell Bill Burt he would return it, which I didn't believe. But it was returned the next day. This is the only murder that I knew of Billy committing, and he was due to hang the following week. I do not blame him then, and I don't blame him now. On the run now, Billy's friends urged him to cross the border to Mexico. Wise old Delavina fed him meals and urged the girls to sing and dance with him to get him to enjoy life so he'd want to escape across the border. Then she begged him to flee, but he would only repeat in Spanish that he had to stay. While Bonnie was on the run, Governor Wallace's replacement placed a new $500 bounty on the fugitive's head. Almost three months after his escape, Garrett, Responding to rumors Bonnie was in the vicinity of Fort Sumner, left Lincoln with two deputies on July 14, 1881, to question resident Pete Maxwell, a friend of Bonnie's. One objective, to interview citizens of Fort Sumner and to try and determine if Billy was in the area. With Garrett was John Poe, a lean Kentuckian who was known for cleaning up Fort Griffin and also was a cattleman's detective. He was working as a deputy U.S. marshal when Garrett hired him. In White Oaks, a barroom fly who knew Garrett told him that Billy was in Fort Sumner, which shocked both Garrett and Poe, who believed by then that Billy had crossed the border in New Mexico. They headed for Fort Sumner, along with Roswell Deputy Sheriff Tip McKinney. Poe went into the town first, as he was least known in those parts, to reconnoiter, finding that there were only about one dozen whites in the town, those being outlaw types likely friendly to Billy, and the rest were Mexican, many of whom took an instant curiosity to who Poe was and what he was doing there. They invited him to a saloon for drinks, which he drank slowly while trying to convince them that he was a prospector just passing through. They seemed convinced, but they were suspicious, and he carefully avoided answering any questions that would give him away, getting a definite feeling that his life wouldn't be worth a nickel if they were to discover his real intentions. He and Garrett spent one night staking out a house outside of Fort Sumner that Garrett knew was the home of one of Billy's former girlfriends. And when that didn't pan out, Poe suggested that they try the home of Peter Maxwell, which was a long, one-story adobe which had formerly been used as an officer's quarters, since Maxwell knew most of the comings and goings around Sumner and might be able to provide information as to Billy's whereabouts. Poe's account, thought to be much more accurate than Garrett's, which was ghostwritten by Ash Upton, reads, in part, "'as follows. "'Garrett said to me,' wrote Poe, "'this is Maxwell's room in this corner. "'You fellows wait here while I go in and talk to him.' "'McKinney squatted alongside a fence "'while I sat on a porch in the darkness. "'It was now around midnight. "'I had never seen Billy the Kid or Maxwell, "'which in view of the events transpiring "'put me at an extreme disadvantage.' It was probably not more than thirty seconds after garrett had entered maxwell's room when my attention was attracted from where i sat in the little gateway to a man approaching on the inside of and along the fence some forty or fifty steps away i observed that he was only partially dressed and was both bareheaded and barefooted or rather had only socks on his feet and it seemed to me that he was fastening his trousers as he came toward me at a very brisk walk "'As Maxwell's was the one place in Fort Sumner "'that I had considered above suspicion of harboring the kid, "'I was entirely off my guard, "'the thought coming to my mind "'that the man approaching was either Maxwell "'or some guest of his who might have been staying with him. "'He came on until he was almost within arm's length "'of where I sat before he saw me, "'as I was partially concealed from his view by the gatepost. "'Upon seeing me, he covered me with his six-shooter, "'quick as lightning, and sprang out onto the porch.' calling out in Spanish, "'Quién es?' Who is it in English? At the same time, backing away toward the door through which Garrett had passed just seconds earlier. He repeated, "'Quién es?' A few times. At this point, I stood up and advanced toward him, telling him not to be alarmed, that he should not be hurt, and still without the least suspicion that he was the man we were looking for. He then backed up into the doorway of Maxwell's room, where he halted for a moment, his body concealed by the thick adobe wall at the side of the doorway, from whence he put his head out and asked again in Spanish, ¿Quién es? I was within a few feet of him when he disappeared within the room. An instant after he went through the door, I heard him say, Pete, who are those fellows on the outside? An instant later, a shot was fired in the room, followed immediately by what everyone on the outside within hearing distance thought was two other shots. However, there were only two shots fired, the third report, as we learned afterward, being caused by the rebound of the second bullet which had struck the adobe wall and rebounded against the headboard of a wooden bedstead. I heard a groan and one or two gasps from where I stood in the doorway, as of someone dying in the room. An instant later, Garrett came out, brushing against me as he passed. He stood by me close to the wall at the side of the door and said, That was the kid, and I think I've got him. I said, Pat! "'The kid would not come here. "'You've shot the wrong man.' "'Upon my saying this, "'Garrett seemed to be doubting himself, "'but quickly spoke up and said, "'I am sure that was him, "'for I know his voice too well to be mistaken. "'This remark of Garrett's "'relieved me of considerable apprehension, "'as I had felt almost certain "'that someone who we did not want "'had been killed. "'Pete Maxwell had been in the room. "'Garrett must have knocked first "'and identified himself. "'My question Why would he approach Maxwell at midnight asking if he knew the kid was in town? That was highly suspect. Garrett must have had a tip from a local that was never mentioned in any of the accounts. I think we can safely assume it was more than a chance visit. Poe's account continues. This occurred about midnight on the 14th of July, 1881. We spent the remainder of the night on the Maxwell premises, keeping our guard as we expected to be attacked by friends of the dead man. But nothing of the kind occurred. The next morning we sent for a justice of the peace who held an inquest over the body, the verdict of the jury being such as to justify the killing. As an aside, we'll note here that as the story goes, the women of the community, led by old Deliavina, asked for permission to prepare Billy's body for burial and hold a candlelight vigil through the morning hours of the 15th. Two saw horses were placed in a carpenter shop with Billy's coffin on top, and at first only moonlight lit the scene until candles were brought in by someone from the Maxwell family, possibly Julia or Deliavina, along with other people of the town. Friends of Billy filed in to see the body as word started to spread. Poe continues, Later that day, the body was buried in a pine box in the old military cemetery at Fort Sumner. There have been many wild and untrue stories of this affair, one of which was that we had somehow learned in advance that the kid would come to Maxwell's that night, and we had concealed ourselves there with the purpose of waylaying and killing him. "'Another was that we had cut off his fingers "'and carried them away as trophies or souvenirs. "'And of later years, it has been said many times "'that the kid was not dead at all, "'but had been seen alive and well in various places. "'The actual facts, however, are exactly as stated herein, "'and while we no doubt would, under the circumstances, "'have laid in wait for him at the Maxwell premises "'if there had been the slightest reason that he had come there, "'the fact that he did come was a complete surprise to us. "'Absolutely unexpected,' and unlooked for as far as we three were concerned. The death of Billy the Kid at the hands of the law was told throughout the region and the country within hours, his name being synonymous to most people with that of a bloodthirsty killer, thanks to that image always having been applied by the newspapers of the day, which added to one story after another without ever checking to get the real story of who killed who, preferring to side with public opinion that they themselves had basically created through their lack of diligence their willingness to taint or twist facts to suit their perspective or bias regarding Billy the Kid, and their eagerness to sell copy and see their name and story in print. We'll give you the story of the man who claimed he was Billy the Kid and that Garrett shot the wrong man in a few minutes, rather than in a separate episode, as previously stated. But first, here's some cold water for you. A few hours after the shooting, a local justice of the peace assembled a coroner's jury of six people. The jury members interviewed Maxwell and Garrett, and Bonnie's body and the location of the shooting were examined. The jury certified the body as Bonnie's, and according to a local newspaper, the jury foreman said, It was the kid's body that we examined. Bonnie, as we now know, was given a wake by candlelight. He was buried the next day, and his grave was denoted with a wooden marker. Five days after Bonnie's killing, Garrett traveled to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to collect the $500 reward offered by Governor Lou Wallace for his capture, dead or alive. William G. Rich, the acting New Mexico Territorial Governor, refused to pay the reward. Over the next few weeks, the residents of Las Vegas, Mesilla, Santa Fe, White Oaks, and other New Mexico cities raised over $7,000 bounty reward money for Garrett. A year and four days after Bonnie's death, the New Mexico Territorial Legislature passed a special act to Grant Garrett, the $500 bounty reward promised by Governor Wallace. Because people had begun to claim Garrett unfairly ambushed Bonnie, Garrett felt the need to tell his side of the story and called upon his friend, journalist Marshall Upson, to ghostwrite a book for him, as we mentioned at the top. The book, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, was first published in April of 1882. Although only a few copies sold following its release, it eventually became a reference for later historians who, who wrote about Bonnie's life. It has a number of embellishments and factual errors. And you can start by his not knowing Billy's real birth name, Henry McCarty, and then moving on from there. But back then it was much harder to get records and search accounts than it is today. Over time, legends claiming Bonnie was not killed and that Garrett staged the incident and death out of friendship so Bonnie could evade the law formed and grew. During the next 50 years, a number of men claimed they were Billy the Kid. Most of these claims were easily disproven, but one has remained a topic of discussion and debate. In 1948, a Central Texas man, Ollie P. Roberts, nicknamed Brushy Bill, began claiming he was Billy the Kid. And he claimed to birth, December 31, 1859, same as Billy's, Brushy Bill Roberts, a.k.a. William Henry Roberts, AKA Ollie Partridge William Roberts, aka Ollie N. Roberts or Ollie L. Roberts, attracted attention by claiming to be the Western outlaw William H. Bonney, also known as Billy the Kid. Roberts' claim was rejected by Governor Thomas Mabry in 1950 and has been widely debated since that time. Brushy Bill's story is promoted by the Billy the Kid Museum in his hometown of Hiko in Hamilton County, Texas. His claim was explored in a 2011 episode of Brad Meltzer's Decoded and a segment by Robert Stack in 1990 with Unsolved Mysteries. This whole kerfluffle began in 1948 when a lawyer named William Morrison located an elderly man named Joe Hines, who had requested ownership of the lands of his deceased brother. Hines had confessed that he was the outlaw Jesse Evans, who had vanished from public view after getting released from a Texas prison in 1882. You remember him from the story, He Shot Tunstall and Burned Chapman's Body in a Public Square. Real solid citizen. Anyway, Hines, or Evans if you choose, told Morrison of his experiences in the Lincoln County War with Billy the Kid, who as we know was killed by Sheriff Pat Garrett, July 14, 1881. Hines surprised Morrison by claiming that the Kid was still alive and living near Hamilton, Texas under the name of Ollie P. Roberts and nicknamed Brushy Bill. Morrison then began a correspondence with Roberts who eventually confessed to being the kid and detailed his supposed exploits as an outlaw. He told anecdotes that if true would fill in undocumented gaps in many aspects of the life of Billy the Kid and asked for Morrison's help in acquiring the full pardon he said he'd been promised by New Mexico Governor Lou Wallace in 1879 but had been refused. He showed his ability to slip out of handcuffs and said that Garrett had actually shot and killed another gunslinger named Billy Barlow, and had passed his body off as the kid's, which had allowed the kid to vanish and escape to Mexico. Roberts told Morrison that he would agree to tell the whole truth in exchange for the full pardon he'd been promised by Wallace. Brushy Bill claimed to have been born William Henry Roberts in Buffalo Gap, Texas, near Abilene, and claimed to have taken the identity of Oliver P. Roberts around 1910. Detractors of Roberts point to the fact that a family Bible belonging to Oliver Roberts' niece, Geneva Pittman, showed that Oliver P. Roberts was born in 1879. Because Billy the Kid was 21 at the time of his death in 1881, if Brushy Bill Roberts was born Oliver P. Roberts, then it would be impossible for him to have been the kid. Supporters of Roberts maintain that the birth date of the real Oliver P. Roberts would have no relevance to a man who assumed his identity later in life. It is worthy of note that if Brushy Bill had been born in 1859, he would have been 90 at the time of his death from a massive heart attack in Hico, Texas. Had he been born in 1879, he would have been only 71 at the time of his death and still in cowhide diapers when Billy was killed. In addition, Roberts, going for the Grand Slam of Outlawdom, had allegedly claimed to be a member of Jesse James's gang before deciding to come out as the true Billy the Kid. In January 1950, Brushy Bill claimed he was a member of the James Younger gang as a teenager and identified J. Frank Dalton as Jesse James. Morrison vouchsafed that upon examination of Robert's stripped body, he showed every scar that Billy the Kid reputedly had, and more. Where he got research on Billy's scars is anyone's guess. Morrison also attempted to track down former Evans gang member Jim McDaniels and located him in Round Rock, Texas. McDaniels, along with several Gallegos, Martil Abel and Jose Montoya, all of whom had known Billy the Kid, signed affidavits verifying their belief that Roberts was in fact Billy the Kid. Bill and Sam Jones declined to sign such affidavits, Sam Jones begging off with the statement, Received your letter and I'm sorry but feel I can't sign your affidavit. I'm old, and I just don't feel like being obligated. And Bill Jones' grandson expressing doubts about the veracity Robert's claims in a letter of refusal written on his grandfather's behalf. The kid was fluent in spoken Spanish and could read and write English proficiently, as we know. His letters to Governor Lou Wallace were quoted here verbatim. But the question of whether or not Brushy Bill was even literate is still unsettled. Apparently he was not. Brushy and his story were largely forgotten until the movie Young Guns 2 depicted him as the narrator of events surrounding the life and times of Billy the Kid and the Lincoln County War. More books were written on the mystery and researchers began exploring whether Brushy's claim might have actually been true, including several failed attempts to obtain permission for exhumation and DNA testing. Billy's grave had been washed out in the 1904 flood, so no help there. Numerous books have been published since 1950 examining Brushy's claim, the first of which was Alias Billy the Kid, written by Morrison and the Western historian C.L. Sonicson. This book received mixed reviews at the time, but did win support from former President Harry S. Truman, who wrote to Morrison indicating he believed that Brushy was Billy the Kid, and lamenting that he died before being able to go in front of the next governor, where he may have gotten a more favorable result. In 2005, W.C. Jameson, himself a student of C.L. Sonicson, re-examined the subject and released Billy the Kid Beyond the Grave. Jameson's work led to increased interest in Robert's story and led to additional interest and study, most notably that of former Lincoln County Deputy Sheriff and Mayor of Capitan, New Mexico, Steve Sederwall. In April 2015, Bill O'Reilly weighed in on the topic by publishing his book, Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Liars, the Real West, in which he suggests that the evidence in favor of Brushy Bill Roberts outweighs the accepted version of history, citing the original alias Billy the Kid book by Morrison and Sonicson. O'Reilly followed up his book with an episode on the subject during his national television broadcast purportedly depicting the events that occurred during the alleged killing of the kid from Brushy Bill's perspective. I will admit I haven't had a chance to study any of the aforementioned books or a video of Bill O'Reilly's television broadcast. And a few of these guys are great writers and researchers, so there may be some good nuggets in those. After you get past the coroner's inquest, though, what gets me is old Deluvina and the townspeople upon his death. She would have known if that body was Billy's or not. And if it wasn't, she and all those friends of Billy's who filed by the coffin would have had to have been told by her to say nothing, unless, of course, the coffin was closed, and it was dark in there. So, who knows? And the big question, did they match up Brushy Bill using modern technology? In 1989, the Lincoln County Heritage Trust commissioned a computer study by forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow. Scanned photographs of Billy the Kid and Roberts, along with those of 150 other people, were fed into a computer utilizing a similarity index to match 25 facial landmarks. This resulted in Roberts' photo ranking 42nd, i.e., 41 other people more closely resembled the tintype than Robert's. Snow indicated that if the two were the same person, then Roberts should have ranked at least second. It was noted that the accuracy of facial comparisons are dependent on the position of the face in the photographs being the same, so Brushy bombed there. However, they're using a picture of an old tintype. Back then, pictures were burned onto thin metal plates, and the quality wasn't always that great. In 1990 a study using photo comparison equipment at the Laboratory for Vision Studies and the Advanced Graphic Laboratory in the University of Texas was conducted by image experts Scott Acton and Alan Bovick. The study corrected for the facial positioning and used the same face recognition techniques used by the FBI, CIA, and Interpol, which are claimed to provide a significant level of statistical validity. Photographs of Brushy Bill Roberts at age 14 seem to resemble the well-known Dedrick Uptum Tin tintype of Billy the Kid. A photograph of Brushy Bill at age 71 was a 93% match. Both Acton and Bobick concluded that this result irrefutably shows that Roberts and the Kid are a very close match. However, these findings would have, have to be replicated to be scientifically conclusive, which to this date hasn't occurred, and in that case would still not prove that Roberts and Billy the Kid were the same person. In 1996, the results of the study were presented to Andre McNeil, chancery judge of the 12th Judicial District, and a prominent Arkansas attorney, Helen Grinder, who stated that, based on the study and other evidence, the case for Roberts, being Billy the Kid, was strong, substantial, and excellent. In 2003, Lincoln County Sheriff Tom Sullivan, Capitan New Mexico Mayor Steve Setterwall, and DeBaca County, New Mexico Sheriff Kerry Graves began a campaign to exhume the remains of Billy the Kid and his mother, Catherine Antrim, to prove through DNA analysis that it was in fact Billy the Kid buried in Fort Sumner. But the initiative hit snags from the beginning. First, there was no confirmation as to where the remains were located. Second were the legalities, with both pro-Brushy Bill Roberts and anti-Brushy Bill Roberts experts protesting the exhumation. The exhumation of both sets of remains was blocked in court in September 2004. The Fort Sumner Cemetery where Billy the Kid was said to have been buried was washed out, as we already mentioned, by the Great Pecos River Flood in 1904. The damage was so great that exposed remains had to be reburied with most being unidentified. Billy's headstone had been washed away and his grave remained unmarked for 28 years. Although a headstone was erected in 1932... It is unknown where the original grave was. The Silver City Cemetery where Catherine Antrim was buried was sold in 1882 with the new owner required to relocate the graves outside the city limits. There's no record to indicate whether the bodies were moved or just the headstones. It is possible that other people had been buried in the same grave. It's also possible that she had been originally buried in an unmarked grave with the headstone placed by guesswork later. It is likely any remains have decomposed completely and there's a negligible chance of positively identifying remains if any are found. And Roberts claimed Catherine Antrim was not his mother but an aunt related by marriage so a DNA test would be meaningless in any scenario other than Catherine and Billy's remains both being identified, tested and shown to be mother and son. And it was Catherine McCarty as we know now. That's a big one to miss, Brushy. At the time of his death, Brushy Bill lived on West 2nd Street in Hico. He was buried in the county seat of Hamilton, 20 miles south of Hico. Despite the discrepancies noted above, the Hico Chamber of Commerce has capitalized on his claim by opening the Billy the Kid Museum in the historic western section of Hico. In the downtown is a marker devoted to Brushy Bill. Ollie L. Brushy Bill Roberts, alias Billy the Kid, died in Hico, Texas, December 27th, Nineteen fifty, he spent the last days of his life trying to prove to the world his true identity and obtain the pardon promised by him by the governor of the state of New Mexico, Lou Wallace. Well, I've left you with a lot to check out, and some are saying, and some are saying that's one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the West. Was Brushy Bill really Billy the Kid? Let us know at Facebook slash One Thousand One Heroes. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Apple listeners, we need reviews, so please take a few minutes and send one along. And thanks to those of you who have. And let us know what stories you'd like to hear. And don't forget, we gladly accept patron donations at patreon.com forward slash 1001 network. You can find 1001 Heroes anywhere great podcasts are found. Our network Now receive 250,000 unique listens a month, and we're always adding new listeners, especially when you take a moment to help a friend find us on their smartphone. Thank you, and thanks for being such good fans. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.